0: Well this morning we continue our look at the book of Jonah together and we are we've made our way as far as verse 7 in chapter 1. And as we look at the book of Jonah together let us understand that we are looking at not a book of allegory but a book of history. For Jonah was an actual prophet who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a big fish. And as a result, we find a prophet who is resisting the will of God. The title of my message this morning is Running from the Will of God, Part 2. Because the book starts off immediately with a prophet being summoned by God to, be, uh, to take him to the city of Nineveh, to proclaim that judgment is about to fall upon the city of Nineveh. And the immediate reaction of this prophet is to run in the opposite direction of the call of God upon his life. And that's the way this story starts. And though I use the term story, I say it as a historical story. This actually happened. Jesus confirmed that for us. Something was so fearful to Jonah that he resisted the call of God upon his life. Where we know earlier in 2 Kings that Jonah was a well-respected prophet of that time who labored alongside the prophet Amos and the prophet Hosea and ministered to the nation of Israel during the time of King Jeroboam II in 76 AD. I'm sorry, B.C., excuse me. And as a result, the nation of Israel under King Jeroboam was experiencing a time of great prosperity, a time of great wealth and reward, a time of military expansion, just slightly less than the zenith that they experienced under the king's reign of Solomon. And yet Jeroboam was an evil king before God. But God in his hope and desire was showing mercy and blessing and prosperity to his people in hopes that they would repent and come back to him. For spiritually they were distant from God. Spiritually they began to worship other gods, the pagan gods of the uh, cities and nations around them. And often God would need to judge and correct his people, and the manner in which he did so was to bring about the Assyrian empire against his people, Israel. Now, the city of Nineveh, where Jonah is being called to preach and to proclaim the judgment of God is about to fall upon them, was the home of the Assyrian empire, the, the, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, were some of the most wicked, evil people that ever lived. Known for their lying, known for their uh, wickedness, known for their uh, cruelty towards others. The prophet Nahum tells us clearly that the people of Nineveh were people to be feared. Assyrians were so cruel to their captives that they would literally cut the lips off the mouths of their captives so they could not eat or drink. They then would put hooks in their bodies right here and then lead them through the streets of Nineveh and parading them in their disfigured, cruel manner in which they did. And now Jonah is being called to this city, which was the largest city at that time for it was a 3 days journey across the breadth of the city the wall around the city of Nineveh was 60 miles in circumference and yet it wasn't the size of the city that caused Jonah to run it wasn't the evil of the city that caused Jonah to run For Jonah was running not from the city of Nineveh per se, but from more specifically the presence of God. This call upon Jonah is something that he did not believe that he could see through or carry out due to the fact of fear that he had. And though he claims in our text this morning to have a fear of God, there was fear greater within him that allowed him to disobey the call of God upon his life and it was the fear of forgiveness it was the fear of forgiveness that motivated and moved jonah to run from the call of god upon his life now that may be a sentence you've never heard before or a statement or a phrase you've never heard before a fear of forgiveness I argue that the book of Jonah demonstrates for us that there are individuals who fear forgiveness. Some who fear forgiveness are those who be, have become comfortable in their unforgiveness towards another. Not only have they been found themselves to become comfortable in that unforgiveness, but they've also in some degree found their identity in that unforgiveness we also find that there are those like Jonah who fear forgiveness due to the fact that they have no desire to reconcile with the person in whom they harbor unforgiveness towards. And thirdly, and more importantly, I think to our story in our context of the book of Jonah, is a fear of forgiveness due to the fact that if God were to forgive those And whom forgiveness has been offered, it would highlight the sin within themselves. And this is a very serious issue. Unforgiveness is a sin before God. Many today believe that they are walking in righteousness before their God when in actuality they are hiding sin within their heart due to the fact of their unwillingness to forgive. The mandate for us as individual Christians to forgive those who have wronged us is not found in the circumstances of the individual coming and asking for that forgiveness. That would be convenient. A person comes, they ask for forgiveness, one who has wronged us, and then we forgive. That would be an easy catalyst to respond to. But Jesus tells us very clearly that we are to forgive simply because we have been forgiven by Him. Now that's much more difficult to wrestle with because in our unforgiveness, we believe that we are placing a certain degree of punishment upon a person that has wronged us, that we in some way are now justified in our unforgiveness because we have been wronged. And yet God says, no, I want you to forgive them simply on the basis that I have forgiven you. Now that makes us wrestle with a whole new set of issues, doesn't it? Because if we were honest with ourselves before God, whatever I am harboring before another person, how does that weigh in the light of all that God has forgiven me through Christ Jesus? This is a very serious issue. Many Christians are struggling in their Christian walk due to unforgiveness. Here we find Jonah running from the will of God because of his fear of unforgiveness. Of his fear of forgiveness, excuse me, more specifically. And I pray that as we move through the book of Jonah together, we will see the reality in the heart of God towards people we will see the reality of the attitudes of Jonah that are manifesting themselves through the fact that he is running from the will of God. I pray that you and I would discover that even in our own personal disobedience, the perfect sovereign will of God will be fulfilled each and every time. For Jonah's fear of forgiveness caused him to run from the call of God upon his life. God has called us not only to forgive, but to do many other things as believers in Jesus Christ. And if we disregard that calling, if we disregard those commandments, then we are running from and disobeying the will of God. If God has told us not to do things that we are occupied in doing, then we are disobeying the call of God and we are running from the will of God. If God is calling us to do something and we are unwilling to do it, we are running from the will of God within our lives. And Jonah is running from the will of God for his life. From the very beginning of the conception of the nation of Israel. From the moment God called Abraham out of Haran to establish through him a people, a nation, that all the people of the world would be blessed. His desire was that Israel would be a witness, a light unto the world that would draw people unto God. You and I now are that witness. God has saved us for the purpose of being that witness. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill that witness. That we may be a light in the darkness, drawing people on to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by the manner in which we conduct our lives. And if we, like the children of Israel, are going to be irresponsible in that calling, if we are going to walk contrary to those things that we say we believe, If we are going to run from the will of God, if we are going to have a disobedient heart towards the things of God, then we are not going to fulfill that witness that God has called us to be. That's the problem that we face here in the United States of America. Many have asked me, what is your plan, pastor, to help your church grow numerically? Well, I'm going to state it this morning. This is my plan. I don't have one. No. My plan is to equip you, to teach you, to love you, in order that you may fulfill the ministry in which God has called you to. You are the advertisement for Calvary Chapel Cardinal. More importantly, you are the advertisement for Jesus Christ. I'm equipping you to take what you know of God into the world in which you occupy and share it with others. And through your witness, individuals therefore being drawn on to God and and, and being brought to the Lord will increase the numbers of our church. It's not all my responsibility jesus set forth his disciples to go into the world and make disciples of all nations that's the mandate of our church but if we refuse to do that then we are running from the will of god and one of the aspects that will keep us from fulfilling the will of god in our lives is harboring unforgiveness towards another As we pick it up in verse 7 this morning, we find Jonah is on a ship, and the ship is making its way to Tarshish, the farthest port from the city of Nineveh that uh, that Jonah could find a ship embarked for. And while he is on the ship, trying to elude God, escaping from the presence of God, avoiding the presence of God... We find him sleeping in the bowels of the ship when all of a sudden God, he states, hurls a storm against this ship to the point that the storm was so great that it was about to break up the ship. The mariners upon the ship, including the captain, are trying to discover what has happened, apparently realizing that the storm itself is beyond the natural. Sailors and mariners of that time had great fear of the sea. And of course their legends and their myths and, the, and so forth led them to believe that whoever controlled the sea was the god of all gods. Because the sea for them was something that could not be tamed by anyone who wasn't a superior deity in and of themselves knowing that this was an unnatural occurrence. They were now looking to discover why they had found themselves in such a place. And they all began to call out to their gods, the Bible said. And yet none of their gods could cease the storm from raging. And so the captain then goes and finds that Jonah, their passenger, is asleep in the bowels of the ship. And he says, what are you doing? and he calls him a sleeper (gasps) oh my and as a result jonah is then taken to the deck of the ship he is asked now to petition his god in hopes that his god may be able to settle the sea and the storm that is raging against them however though jonah knows exactly why everything is occurring the way it is because he's running from the will of god And yet God in his sovereignty is going to stop Jonah in his tracks. Because it is not only God's desire to work in the hearts of the people of Nineveh, but also to work in the life of Jonah himself. To correct the attitudes and to release him from that fear of forgiveness that he appears to be carrying into the place in which he finds himself. So we pick it up in verse 7. And as the mariners converse with one another, they ask the question, whose fault is it? But before we get there, let us understand that there's a theological understanding of God that cannot be missed at this point. And that is what is known as the sovereignty of God. Now you may have heard that term. And you may have heard that term used in different manners to explain itself in different ways. But as one wrote, he said throughout the book of Jonah, God appears as the sovereign, omnipotent ruler of the universe. He says sovereignty means supreme. And God always is and will be the sovereign who freely chooses the plan in which he does meaning that God answers to no one. There is no one greater than God. He is the ultimate authority in all things. Now, when sovereignty is discussed today, it is often discussed in the context of a theological uh, position of soteriology, sovereignty working in the salvation of the individual. That's one manner in where sovereignty works, where the sovereignty of God works in the process of bringing one to Jesus Christ. But sovereignty is found throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, in many different capacities. And one of the lack of discussions taking place concerning the sovereignty of God when it comes to soteriology, the manner in which one is saved is when sovereignty is discussed, it is discussed in the manner that sovereignty in some way, shape, or form works itself within a vacuum. That sovereignty is independent of all the other attributes and characteristics of God. Now, sovereignty gives God an enormous degree, of course, of authority, that there is no authority greater than His. But his sovereignty is subjected and limited. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, this is going to steer some people up. What do I mean by limited sovereignty? It is limited by his other attributes of character. His mercy, his love, his grace, his wrath, and so forth. All of these work together within the context of sovereignty. So when we talk about sovereignty, we talk about it simply in a sterile position of God choosing the ultimate plan and path. But let us understand that that choice is governed by his love, his mercy, his grace, his understanding, and so forth, his wisdom. And in the book of Jonah, we have the perfect demonstration of the sovereignty of God, where God works in his sovereignty and yet man freely chooses to obey or disobey and yet everything works out perfectly according to the sovereignty of God. Because often when sovereignty is discussed, specifically discussed in a vacuum, it is always discussed and then concluded that the free will of man must be eliminated, that man has no choice. that that man has no free will. And yet that's completely contrary to the entire text of the Bible. God's sovereignty is so majestic that it works so brilliantly in the obedience and in the disobedience of man. And God perfectly brings about His ultimate will and fulfills His ultimate purpose each and every time well how is that possible i don't know i'm not god isn't that refreshing that i'm not god you would not want me as god one of my favorite scholars once wrote he says every time we get in trouble concerning theology is when we try to reduce god to our own personal understanding isn't that so true I don't know what, how God always does what he does, but he always does it perfectly. He always does it perfectly. Listen to what one wrote, Norman Geisler. The word itself that is sovereignty means only that he is the supreme being in the universe. Of course, the position brings with it a certain amount of authority. And in God's case, that authority is total and absolute. And we would say amen to that. This does not mean, however, that he rules his universe as a dictator, for God is not only sovereign, he is also love, he is also holiness, and he can do nothing apart from exercise of all of his attributes acting in harmoniously together one within another. He says the concept of sovereignty involves the entire plan of God in all of His interactions and details of design and outworking. Although He often allows things to take their natural course according to the laws in which He has designed, it it is in His sovereignty that God who is working all things according to His ultimate, wise, predetermined plan. The sovereignty of God. So the sailors then on the ship, we return, and they're asking the question, whose fault is it? Verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. How the heck did we find ourselves in this position? Whose fault is it? They begin with the question looking for the individual that has brought him to this place. They believe that what is happening is some kind of judgment from one of the deities against an individual upon their ship. And so to to discover this, in verse 7, they cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. Now, casting lots, some believe, is an instrument in which is used to determine the will of God in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 1. Some believe it's like drawing the short straw. Others believe it is the rolling of some type of dice. Others believe it's the rolling of some kinds of pebbles or stone. We don't really know for sure. But... The lots apparently fall on Jonah. God's sovereignty is revealing to all of them on the ship that Jonah is the reason this, this tragedy and calamity has fallen upon them. And there's no doubt, they know now that it is Jonah's fault. Let us understand that when we run from God, God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. He chastens us as a father would chasten a child. And to begin that corrective process, he often has to draw out our sin before us. The book of Numbers, Moses wrote, he says, But if you will not do as I have told you to do, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. See, God's not going to allow sin just to fester within you, unconfessed and undealt with. Because sin unconfessed and undealt with will do just that. It will fester and it will permeate through your entire body. And so God in His sovereignty and in His care and love for you wants and desires you to deal with that sin in your life, He'll cause it to be drawn out from you. In one way or another. And I can just imagine them standing on this ship. The sea is raging around them. They cast their lots, and all of a sudden, all eyes turn on Jonah. That's my fault. I'm running from God. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not doing it. Galatians write Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he shall reap. As believers in Jesus Christ, let us know that God gives us an opportunity to deal with sin in our lives. If we choose not to deal with sin in our lives, if we choose to hide that sin within our lives, God will bring that sin out in one way or another. In the book of, jo- the, in the book of uh, Joshua, after defeating the incredible city in which they did, and they marched around the walls, and the walls fell and I can't remember the name of the city Jericho, God bless you all. I'm on medication, forgive me. Uh, the walls of Jericho fell, uh, fell. They felt that they were invincible. The next city they came to was a city called Ai, which was much smaller and should have been easily conquered. But God made it clear that none of the items of Ai might be taken by them. They need to just leave them all. And yet one amongst them decided to take some of the items and hide them in his tent. And as a result, they lost their battle against Ai. And Joshua is now distraught and he begins to cry out to God, God, what happened? Why has this occurred? And God said, get up and I'll show you why. And sure enough, Joshua goes through the ranks and finally God reveals that Achan had taken these things and as a result, many had died in the wake of their defeat there at Ai. And so Achan was dealt with by being executed himself. But as a result of his sin and his hiding of his sin... Others paid the price. Others paid the cost. When David tried to hide his sin after sleeping with Bathsheba, Psalm 32 is written, and it says that David in his heart was drying up. The bones within him were becoming brittle. He was feeling distant from God. He was in his relationship. He was dry with God. He was dry in his other relationships. Things weren't going right any longer. Things weren't on, an, uh, on the right path. And he saw all of this, and it was all due to the fact that he hid the sin from everyone and from God. And then, of course, the prophet Nathan draws that out of him. And then when you come to the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, who come and claim that they've given all unto God that they had received for the selling of their land and lying before the Holy Spirit, were struck down dead for their hypocrisy before the new formed church. Sin is serious before God. Sin will cause your relationship with God to dry up. You'll feel distant from God. You will feel as if God is not working in and through your life. And it's simply because you are not dealing with something He has asked you to deal with. And as a result, not only do you suffer consequences, but many around you do also, as these mariners did, as they were trying to understand why this had occurred. So now in verse 8, they ask him clearly and directly. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, Well, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, I'm a Jewish man. I believe in fear of the Most High God, the one who is over all of heaven and over all of earth, the one who has made the sea and the dry land. And I am his prophet, one who is speaking on his behalf, and I am currently running away from him as fast as I can. In the wake of his running away from God and running away from the will of God, Jonah's testimony had been lost before the sailors. He says to them that he believes these things about God and he has a right conception of God, that he is the God of all things, that he is God that who is sovereign over all things, and yet he is unwilling to do what that God has asked him to do. Jonah knows all about the Lord. His theology is perfect before the Lord in the limited understanding that he has at this point. However, Jonah does not want to live like that in which he knows the Lord and believes in the Lord. We in the United States of America want to believe that we can believe one thing and act contrary to that belief. This is an oxymoron. it's, It's truly something that is irreconcilable. And the reason I say that is because what a person believes is truly what that person will act upon. Anybody can say they believe anything, but when they act upon that belief, they are demonstrating that they truly believe it. You know, today we see many who say they oppose our current culture and some of the... distortions uh, of god's purposes such as god distorting god's plan for marriage distorting uh the role of the church distorting this they can say yes we believe in god's perfect plan for marriage we can believe in god's perfect plan for the church we can believe in what god says in his word but if they act contrary to it or they deny it through their actions do they really believe what they say they believe And this is what you would call a hypocrite. This is what you call one sporting a bad witness before the people. Yes, I'm a Hebrew. I am a servant of the Most High God in whom I fear. And I am his prophet. And I am not going to do what he has asked me to do. I can just see all of the sailors going, great. (laughs) Uh, That doesn't make any sense. And as a result... Jonah becomes ineffective in reaching the people around him, as many who run from the will of God have tarnished their testimony before those outside of God and now are no longer capable of being a good witness for the Lord to those people. Verse 11, then they said to him, well, well, what shall we do? Uh, You know, obviously, if you're running from God and you're his prophet and you say you fear him and he's the God over everything, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. And he said to them, that is Jonah, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land for they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against us. It appears that Jonah is offering himself to save these other individuals. I'm not sure it's as magnanimous as that. I think that he is so determined not to go to Nineveh. He's just like, get rid of me and throw me into the sea. And then I don't have to go to Nineveh and see the possibility of the, the Ninevites coming to God in repentance. But the men didn't originally desire to throw him into the sea. They appeared to be coming more fearful of the God of Jonah. And maybe they were concerned that throwing Jonah into the sea would further provoke the God of Jonah and therefore seal their fate completely. But was there any hope of them being saved? Could they be spared from the judgment that had come upon them? And it is interesting that Jonah parallels for us and asks that he be sacrificed on their behalf. And you can only think of the person of Jesus Christ. There's only one way that a person can be saved and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. A sacrifice of one for all. And he asks them to just throw them into the sea. But that wasn't their first course of action. Notice that they began to try to row and steer the ship back to safety, but it was impossible to do so. An illustration that it is impossible for one to save themselves apart from God. No one is capable of saving themselves Only God can save them through the sacrifice in which Jesus Christ has provided for them on their behalf. But things just continued to get worse that led the mariners to no other choice but to throw Jonah over. Notice with me in verse 14 that they begin now to look at Jonah And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. The individuals were so absolutely uh, overwhelmed and amazed by the fact that throwing Jonah into the sea spared their own personal lives. It allowed them to see that the God in whom Jonah followed is the one true God. And even in the light of Jonah's disobedience and his poor witness and his lack of testimony, God still showed himself strong to these men who were simply traveling by ship, unbeknownst to them carrying a prophet who is fleeing from his God. The sovereignty of God working miraculously... As God tried to stop the ship. And notice that the degree and the rage of the storm was to the point that it could break the ship but did not break the ship. That's the hand of our God. Bringing about his judgment into the, in a proportionate response to the ship but not allowing the ship to be overwhelmed and sank by the storm. And the moment that they cried out to God and saying, God forgive us. Please don't hold us guilty for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You have brought this about, Lord. You have brought us into this position. God's sovereignty working in the choice of the individual, even obedience and in disobedience, God's perfect will finding and discovering its way through. And as a result, God responded to them to the point that the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. Now, we don't know if they just added God to the plethora of gods that they already worshiped or If the term they feared the Lord exceedingly means that they now had come to the realization that he was the one true God. In either case, they sacrificed unto him and they made vows before him. And as a result, the storm ceased. And God, even in the wake of the disobedience of Jonah, was able to witness to these men on this ship for his purposes. And as a result, they were spared from the tempest in which God had brought about. This is where I wonder about Jonah and hearing these men ask for forgiveness of God. As As Jonah is standing there about to be thrown overboard, he sees the men around him now turn to the God in whom he is fleeing from. And they ask for forgiveness the very thing that he is afraid of and running from and unwilling to offer to the individuals of Nineveh, these men are simply crying out to the God in the midst of the storm without any certainty of the storm ceasing and crying out and all of a sudden discovering the forgiveness of God. For after throwing Jonah in, they began to worship this God in the wake of that forgiveness. And with or without Jonah, the will of God was perfectly fulfilled in the lives of these men. This is the sovereignty of God I hold to. That it doesn't rely and depend on me, thank God. But God independently works. And even in my disobedience, God can bring about good. Now, I don't live in a disobedient fashion just to watch him do so because I desire to be part of what God is doing. I desire to glorify God with my life. But even when I fail, it doesn't mean that God fails. And even when I am weak, it doesn't mean that God is weak. Or either when I am faithless, that God is faithless. For God showed himself strong to these men. I see that as the loving mercy of God. God knew that these men had been put into this situation due to the disobedience of one of his own personal servants. And as a result, God showed himself to these individuals through the storm. They cried out to him. The storm ceased, and they then feared him, and they offered to him and made vows to him. What an incredible picture that is. But the story doesn't end there, folks. Because now Jonah is sinking in the sea. And though the ship has been spared and the mariners have been spared and they have a newfound fear of the Lord, God's not done yet. For God not only wanted to work here in this particular moment in the hearts of those mariners within that ship as He desires to work in the hearts of the people of Nineveh, but He also desires to work in the heart of His prophet Jonah. And so Jonah as he is sinking to the bottom of the sea, is intercepted. In verse 17, notice with me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Let us understand that it is a great fish and not a whale. It is something beyond our understanding. Early translations of the Bible used uh, the English words for great fish as sea monster, Uh, One translation used the word Leviathan. But this great fish God appointed to swallow Jonah up. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And as we will continue next week, Stay tuned next week as we join Jonah there in the belly of the fish. And the question is, will he be eating sushi that evening? No. The sovereignty of God is at work today as it was in the day of Jonah. God's plans are ultimately going to be fulfilled one way or another within the wake of man's obedience or his disobedience. This allows me a great, great comfort as a believer in Jesus Christ. It shows me that my God is in control of all things, and nothing is going to remove that control from his hands. Though those who would act in disobedience will not enjoy the blessings of the work that God will do in and through them, he is still going to work in one fashion or another. But see, God allows us to be part of the work in which he is doing, and I desire to be part of that. I would hope that you would be desired a part of that. I want to be a part of what God is doing. And yet, as we see the book of Jonah unfold before us, that in the wake of Jonah's rebellion and his disobedience and his running from them and bringing about the calamities in which he did, God still got through to the men. Notice with me, this is the miraculous sovereignty of God. Here we are together on this ship and the storm is now wailing against us. It is raging around us. And within the context of that storm, there are two messages being brought to the people of the ship. To Jonah, it's a message of correction. It's a message of stopping Jonah in his tracks. It's asking Jonah to reconsider his rebellion against his God. But in the lives of the men on the ship, the mariners on that ship, it is an offer of salvation from judgment isn't that miraculous when you think about it the preaching of the gospel does the exact same thing for those who receive it it is the power of god onto salvation isn't it but to those who reject it it is mere foolishness and it is foolishness to those specifically who are perishing one message can have such a dual effect upon its hearers depending on the hearts of the hearers in which receive it. In this one storm, the sovereignty of God demonstrated two messages, one of correction and one of salvation. But what I love about God even further is that he could have left Jonah in the belly of that great fish. Fine, Jonah, you don't want anything to do with what I have? fine, Jonah, you you don't want to go and offer the salvation to the city of Nineveh that I have asked you to offer. But he doesn't do that. See, as Jonah is running from the presence of God, His sin is causing him a trajectory of going down and down and down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the belly of the ship. He went down now into the belly of the whale. And he keeps getting further and further from God. And yet God's grace is still great enough to to span that furtherance from him. Because God loved Jonah too much to leave him there. And as Jonah then now begins to contemplate his position as he settles himself there in the belly of the great fish, God is at work not only in the entire narrative of the story, but in the life of Jonah. As he is working in our lives each and every day. And even in our disobedience, and even if we're in a downward trajectory, We are never too far from the hands of God. And God reaches out to us. And once again, he says, Will you not come back to me? And we'll pick it up there next time together.